Welcome to the Talberg Foundation podcast series, New Thinking for a New World. Host Alan Stober welcomes leaders from around the world to explore the issues that are challenging and changing their societies. From climate change to democracy under siege to geopolitics and beyond, we are looking for ideas that can make all our lives better. The United Nations has turned 75 this year. The birthday celebration was scheduled for the annual UN General Assembly held in New York. But like almost everything else this pandemic year, it has been mostly virtual and mostly muted. While that's good for congestion in New York City, it's not so good for a world that seems unwilling to embrace global solutions for global problems. My guest, Jan Eliasson, a Swedish and global diplomat, served as president of the UN General Assembly, as well as Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations. If anyone knows and loves the UN, Jan does. Welcome. Thank you very much, Alan. Jan, let me start with a very simple question. The UN was built in a different world, primarily to preserve the peace after two world wars. In that task, it succeeded. But is the UN, as it is now constructed, relevant to the problems not of the 20th century, but of the 21st century? I believe so, because the UN Charter is one of the best drafted uh, documents that I've ever run across. Uh, It covers the principles that should guide our action. It sets the direction forward for international cooperation. It underlines in very early times issues like uh, prevention, making it part of the first chapter of the uh, UN uh, Charter, and uh, then also speaks to put at the each at both sides the of the action side the uh, political measures the preventive measures chapter 6 of the UN charter pacific peaceful settlements of disputes and then they have also the more muscular chapter of uh, chapter 7 where of course the veto power was from the beginning uh, very controversial and is of course still a matter of dispute but all in all i think the the UN has aged well, and I think the UN Charter and the institution as such could adapt to the times in which we live now, if the member states are willing to do so. And that's where the big question comes in. To follow on that, today there are two superpowers, only one of which in its current form was at San Francisco that contributed to the writing of that charter. Does it need to change somehow to accommodate the China of the 21st century and the United States of the 21st century? So let's start with the great powers and then work towards everybody else. Well, the uh, basis is, of course, that the five permanent members should adopt a uh, responsible stand on the conflicts of the world. But during the Cold War, we saw that the great powers landed on different sides of the conflicts. And this immobilized the UN completely. After the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, uh, there was a flow of resolutions with the US and Russia then uh, agreeing without really reaching the, uh, the level of action that was needed because you needed even more muscles to to deal with the uh, Balkan situation. Now, I think we have landed in a situation of very deep mistrust. I I think it has 
increased rather drastically in the last four or five years. When I left the UN, we could still have uh, discussions uh, in the corridors and find uh, pragmatic solutions to most issues, perhaps except Syria. But now it seems like the dialogue is extremely uh, poor. And of course, the corona, the COVID-19 situation is sort of symbolically put the light on the fact that there is so little dialogue and there is so little interaction between the major actors. And of course, as long as that now exists and continues, and uh, the difficulties also grow in the bilateral field with the uh, trade issues and the uh, uh, military maneuvers and uh, the territorial issues in the South China Sea, etc., and Taiwan, of course, and Hong Kong and Xinjiang, then, of course, you realize that UN will be, as always, a reflection, uh, a mirror of the world as it is. And I would say that the world is in pretty poor shape. And then almost automatically, the UN becomes also is in poor shape. Although I think we must never forget that UN is not only a mirror reflection of the world as it is, it must also be a mirror reflection of the world as it should be. We must not forget what was stated and what was formulated after the nightmare of the Second World War in the Charter in San Francisco. You mentioned the reaction to the pandemic. What is it about our time that has us looking down towards nationalism, even localism, instead of looking up towards globalism? I was working actively with the avian flu situation 2005 and six. I was working also actively with the Ebola crisis in 2014 and 15. And the difference between these two situations, these two pandemics, and the COVID-19 situation is that the COVID-19 hit universally, immediately, and spread very quickly. In other words, uh, it was a national issue from the very beginning in most countries. Even in the European Union, which has had a common market, almost like a sacred document, we had problems even to see exports from certain countries to others inside the European Union. And we saw, of course, uh, hoarding, uh, hoarding tendencies all over. And we saw the later, uh, more or less a competition, a rivalry on vaccines. While in the earlier examples that I mentioned, Ebola and avian flu, it was a, something that happened in Asia and Africa, respectively. And there was a mobilization of political will. I remember seeing, uh, actually, I met George Bush, the president, he was when he came to the UN. And the first thing he brought up with me was the importance of international cooperation on avian flu. He praised the WHO. It's an interesting parallel to the present difficulties with the present U.S. Uh, president. But uh, I think it, I think the reason is uh, that we had this uh, effect immediately hitting the nations and people at home and old age homes and your cousins and your uncle and so forth. But I think that it is still very important that we come back to realizing that we have to have international cooperation to find solutions. On the vaccine side is one thing, but also research. Uh, and, and, and to see the U.S. leave WHO was to be a tragedy. But is it just, and I put the word just in air quotes, just about leadership? Is it something about global governance and the fact that we are getting 
further and further away from effective global governance in the face of these global issues like pandemic, like climate, like migration. I would say as a sort of general comment on what we need to look for is the coming to the conclusion that uh, good international cooperation, good international agreements are in the national interest of nations. If we take away the, uh, in my view, artificial or false lines between problems on a national scale and international scale and put them in the perspective both of the national and international light, then you have the most realistic analysis of what happens. If we can see that you can't deal with migration issues or climate change or pandemics in a national perspective, it is a global issue and we need to have a division of labor and realize that it is a national interest. I don't only appeal to this from uh, the perspective of having served in the UN and basically being a friend of United Nations and its uh, agencies, but I, I see it also in the uh, realpolitik uh, perspective that it is very important that we take away the borderlines between national and international, and also that we take away between different functions, that we need to see mobilization UN as an institution cannot reach solutions on these issues without the help of governments, without the help of parliaments, without the help of business, without the help of research institutions, without organizations like Telberg and civil society, you and me. And certainly one would hope that the really poor performance by most countries over the past months in the pandemic would be, would create a space where that argument could be made that you ought to try something different and the something different in this case, remarkably, is to try to cooperate internationally on solutions. Yeah. And also you touch upon something important, of course, the fact that we need to really have a wake-up call for good governance. Good governance, sort of mobilizing these forces at home and abroad in different categories Taking away the borderline inside the UN between peace and security work and development work and uh, human rights uh, work uh, and see this mobilization happening, that, that is what is needed for leadership today. I don't know what you would say in this conversation about what kind of leadership we need now in this situation, because I am basically now very worried about where we go. I see multilateralism and crisis I see the polarization not only between nations but inside nations getting more and more nasty. I see political forces at work which uh, bring out almost the worst in us. But if we are to change that direction, we need to see the right kind of leadership and the realistic good message that can really reach out to people. We have perhaps been isolated in the... Uh, liberal order and the liberal traditions in which we have lived in the past 50, 60 years. We clearly need to reinvigorate our democratic institutions. We need to persuade people that democracy is in their interest and indeed can deliver the goods, can deliver the peace and prosperity that is the basic social contract between governments and peoples. How do you do that? Well, my father told me when I had graduated from high school, and I was the first one in my family to graduate from high school. And I asked him, what was it that brought Sweden from being one of the poorest countries in Europe to one of the most prosperous? This was in the late 50s when I graduated. 
And uh, I asked him, what was it that brought about this enormous change? And uh, he said, first, uh, we built infrastructure. We built schools and hospitals, railways, roads that got jobs to the 30s. And we had then prepared ourselves for a good public sector. Secondly, he said, we had a more fair chance for everyone, every young boy and girl, to get educated. You were the first one in the family to do so. And thirdly, and here I come to your point, he said, we trusted the people who ran the city. We trusted the people who ran the county, who ran the state, who ran the government. We said to our best people do that. And damn it, if anyone was guilty of corruption. Maybe that's an idealistic picture of what it was like and how these have developed. But I think uh, the fact that you need to have well-functioning institutions and that you can't just get things, get the world to improve by pointing to the charter, you need to point to the individual responsibility. The first three words of the charter is we the peoples. It's not we the governments. So we have to sort of have a people-oriented approach and make people understand that they are here to serve uh, and that that is in the enlightened self-interest. If you can sort of make that full circle and have that message come out more strongly, we haven't done very well. You know, the inequalities have increased very much since the 90s in most democratic countries. And we have a great difference uh, in Sweden and also in the United States, I understand, between, you know, the countryside, small towns and the country and the big cities, and big states. So we have reason to be self-critical about what we have delivered. And that's why we need to look very much at the delivery side, putting human being in the center, but also using technology and the new world that you pointed to at the beginning and not go look back uh, sort of sentimentally at the past, but to adapt it to the future, work with the, the women who have come up as a new force in the last few years, and they will, of course, have full emancipation. And young people, work with young people, not only for young people. So there are many things we can do. And I think the, the other trend, the trend into uh, polarization, the trends of uh, even extremism uh, are stronger in today's world. Uh, that's why I'm slightly less optimistic than in the past. You have spent a considerable portion of your career mediating among both warring parties and parties that were thinking about becoming warring parties. You know war, you've prevented it, you've ended it. Are you worried that we're slipping towards a world where war could again become a way that nation states solve conflicts? Yeah, I'm, I'm worried. Uh, right now, I'm following the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict very closely. I was actually mediating in that conflict, and together with Russia, uh, OSCE, the mission that I led, achieved a ceasefire, which is now broken. So I see it right now in front of me. And if I look back at my five years at the UN uh, recently, uh, Syria was my biggest nightmare, my biggest frustration. Now I'm chair of the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, CIPRI, and uh, we are seriously concerned about where we are heading. We see the growth of proxy wars uh, like Syria and Libya, where uh, countries in the region and great powers take out their conflicts on the territory of these nations like Syria and Libya. 
We see also in the nuclear field a very dangerous development. Maybe soon in February, if the US and Russia don't agree differently, we may have no agreement whatsoever to regulate the nuclear uh, issues between US and Russia, which is absolutely extremely dangerous. Uh, we see also the development of a, a new generation of nuclear weapons. They call them tactical nuclear weapons, field nuclear weapons, etc. <laughs> if you think that they're all, most of them double the size of the Nagasaki or Hiroshima bombs, you realize that this is not something that is local if it occurs. And you see this uh, issue that we talked about earlier, the lack of trust and the growing uh, Suspicion that there are bad intentions on the other side. That could translate itself with, you know, people not doing what a Soviet general did and uh, an American commander in Hawaii when there was alerts. And you, you let, you stop something because understandably the, to them, there was no reason for a nuclear war now. I think we have the disarmament issue have come in the shadow and we need to really wake up to that. So I think the scientists in the, uh, what is called the bulletin, you know, there's now two or three minutes to the midnight. You know, usually it was five to 10 minutes. And how do we push the clock back? The institutions, the leadership we've talked about, uh, we've talked about the people that need to trust again, the leaders that need to give them reason for trust. But it really does feel, and as we talk and as I listen to you, it does feel like the slope is well-oiled and we are slipping down it a bit. I would say that one of the most serious things that have occurred, and I, I can follow this because I've had the finger on the pulse for so long, is that there is now a deficit in dialogue, deficit in diplomacy. I don't know whether social media or whatever factors play a role, but there's, with such great speed, you enter into a very nasty situation, a very dangerous situation. And we need to have the methods of diplomacy uh, refined and brought up in front of everybody. Chapter 6 of the UN Charter lists eight different methods, and they are mostly unknown, negotiation, mediation, arbitration, etc. So the deficit of dialogue is important, is absolutely crucial. But of course, there has also to be pressure from other sides. If I look for hope now and try to avoid being a, a pessimist who has not given up, but rather come back to being just a concerned uh, uh, optimist, I would say there is an enormous potential in the power and role of women on the one hand and the power and role of youth. I think we haven't exhausted this enormous potential of liberation of women and when I brought women to the negotiations in my mediation work, sort of the human the human dimension came in. We got to know what happened to the children and what, what lack of water in a village meant and so forth. And, and the women's leadership in those conflicts, I was really impressed. So I believe we men should really see that as a huge factor. And I hope to God this trend continues in their full emancipation. Also young people, uh, since I came back to Sweden after my serving in the U.S., I went to my grandchildren's schools, 11-year-old boys and 15-year-old or so. And uh, I came back, my wife told me, rejuvenated, <laughs> having met with the, their ab absolutely clear uh, sense of what is right and wrong, and what we need to do for the climate change. 
so I'm not willing to give up, but I, I say that we have to stand up now for both international cooperation, as we talked about first, and then also what you mentioned very seriously, we have to stand up for the health of our democracies. I think, in fact, we are at a danger point, and we must not let that happen. Uh, maybe at, we are at an historic point of now to mobilize these good forces needed and do it in such a way that we are credible uh, with those who uh, vote and with those who live their daily lives under the conditions that now exist. Let me segue back to your time at the United Nations. One of the projects you worked on was was the establishment of sustainable development goals and the entire process of identifying SDGs, quantifying SDGs, and far more importantly, executing commitments and real progress on those sustainable development goals. Like everything else in our world, the pandemic has interrupted those processes. Is there a need to reinvigorate the SDG work once the pandemic eases? Is that one of the ways to move away from this slippery slope back to something which is more optimistic globally? When I look back at my years at the UN, the best year of my time ever in the UN was 2015. That's when we were part of the process of creating the uh, Iran nuclear deal. Uh, That's when we got the SEDs in September 2015, and that's when we got the Paris Agreement in December 2015. In fact, the uh, Climate Change Agreement uh, has no action plan. The action plan for the Climate Change Agreement of Paris is the Agenda 2030. So here we have 17 goals, 169 targets. It's like a great uh, to-do list uh, for the world. When, When sometimes you tend to fall into hopelessness about the situation in the world, you should look here as a toolbox to repair the world. Uh, Johan Rockström, the climate scientist in Sweden and in Germany also, he said that uh, the SDGs are the uh, survival kit for humanity. And you are right, they have slipped. They have taken a lot of beating. The daily life now in many developing countries is horrible. If you live on between $1 and $5 a day and you don't get that money every day, that means hunger the following day. And uh, we have huge, uh, huge work to do to pick up from there. I would hope that the energy that we have put in, both in the medical area and in the financial area for to fight the pandemic, which is of enormous quantities in the US and Europe, but in the poor countries, they don't have that capacity. But all over the rich part of the world, we have this enormous resource reallocation to fight the pandemic. I think one of the great things to achieve would be to have a logical bridge between the fighting the pandemic and fighting climate change and using the SDGs as the tool to get there. Uh, So therefore, I think there's need for an information campaign. We have a lot of uh, campaigns on the climate. Thank you, Greta and others. Uh, And thank you, uh, van der Leyen, for the Green Deal in the European Union and so forth. But we need really to put the light on how we can do it. And we have then these SDGs, uh, which are, I think, mutually reinforcing, universal in nature, and very ambitious. We will have a difficult time getting there by 2030, but I think whatever we do is the 
best road forward for stable societies in the future. The point's well taken. We have a toolkit. We have a to-do list. We have tools in the toolkit. We have processes. What we lack is leadership. And I think I'll end there because I have bad news for you, Jan. Uh, we need you. <laughs> we need leaders like you. So you may think that you've left, but, but you cannot leave. But Alan, you know that I'm a masochist. It's not bad news. It's good news. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think you've just, again, both demonstrated why we need you and on the other hand, demonstrated how important, how critically important leadership is. Young leadership, old leadership, we need more of it. In terms of deficits, it's not just a diplomacy deficit. I'm afraid it's a leadership deficit. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments and please subscribe to other episodes in the podcast app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.